Welcome. Free thinkers, individualists, creators, and capitalists all around the world. I'm Neil Hausman. I'm your trusty guide to the 21st century. Uh, tonight we're going to look at some of the um, big news of the last couple weeks and figure out what's going on. Uh, how do you like the uh, Great Awakening? Aren't we? Isn't 2020, isn't 2021 a gas? Like we keep exposing a new like conspiracy every other week. Last week it was the um, FDA and how they're more of a business operation than a scientific one. Uh, before we get into it, uh, let me let me uh, ask you if you find this uh, content valuable, please give it a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel wherever whether you're on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, or podcasts. And also share it with your friends and family. And this in this episode, we're going to um, look at some look at some cryptocurrency news, look at some outrages from the so-called Biden White House and their dealings with Afghanistan. We're going to look at some vaccine mandate outrage around the world. We're going to find out why the powers of be are so anxious are so frantic about the uh, vaccine mandates, and we're also going to look at some. Entertainment news and how uh, a legendary Muppets uh, puppeteer, he's going to explain why you should never sell out if you have a business. And we're going to talk about that running a business. Before we get started, let's talk about some of our uh, some of my uh, sponsors. One of them is myself. You can go to my website, NateHouseman.net, click on the shop page, and buy some cool merch. And I've got some referral links in the description. You can go to Acre Gold. And uh, buy, uh, buy physical gold through subscription subscription model. Pay like fifty dollars a month, and when you pay, spend enough money, you actually get physical gold delivered to your house. You can sign up for iTrust Capital, which lets you start a retirement plan in either precious metals or cryptocurrency. You can go to Ivanon Tech Academy. Ivanon Tech has a great YouTube channel. And as soon as the uh, page appears, I'll let you look at it. Ivan Tech has a great YouTube channel, and he explains, you know, cryptocurrency and blockchain technology very well. Sign up for his uh, classes, and you'll um, learn how to become a developer in the space. This is especially important now if you want to, like, create, like, a free speech, censorship-free, you know, app. If you have a business idea, or if you run a small business, go to Fundwise. Uh, click on the link, click on the referral link. Fundwise is a network of alternative business lenders. You don't necessarily want to go to like the banks or maybe or maybe um venture capital or angel investors to get your own get funding for your business. Maybe you want to go through some some um alternative lenders, uh, so you're not on the hook with the uh, central banks. Fundwise will uh, get you started if you uh, qualify. Um, I'll get, you'll um. Have either a, a a nice loan or a line of credit, and if you have a business, you need a website, and you should host that website on DreamHost. DreamHost is my choice for all my websites, and they're a proven free speech platform. So check them out. I'll I'll mention a few others. Um, there's a Vendasta, which lets you um you can hire you can hire out a uh, Web designer and marketing team through them, or you can, or if they're out of your price range, go to Fiverr. You can hire a web designer, marketer, 
There's all sorts of things you can find on Fiverr, and you might even be inspired to start your own business. So check them out. If you click on any of the links in the description, it'll, um, and make a purchase. It'll support my channel, and hopefully it'll, um, be helpful to you as well. So, let's get started. Quick look at the Bitcoin markets as of September 1st, 2021. This is on Coindesk. Ether. Ether breaks out as Bitcoin lags. Ether, the second largest cryptocurrency by market capitalization, broke out of a month-long consolidation on Wednesday and looks poised to continue higher. Bitcoin, meanwhile, was trading at around $48,600 at press time and is up about 30% over the past 24 hours, compared with an 8% rise in ETH over the same period. Ethereum's blockchain activity is bullish, indicating the second leg of the bull run is close, says Alexander Clark, a trader at UK-based digital asset broker GlobalBlock. Um, the recent spike in non-fungible token, or NFT, activity has prompted a rise in transaction value, volume, and active addresses on the Ethereum network, as well as a deflationary supply. For Bitcoin, analysts are watching for a potential increase in trading volume, which has been on the decline over the past month, to confirm support above 46,000 and 48,000. So Ether takes the lead. Ethers, Ether is the um, native cryptocurrency of the Ethereum blockchain platform. Um, so, yeah, the la over the last month, Bitcoin has um, broken out of its funk and is going back, inching up towards its previous all-time high, which was, I believe, in the uh, around $65,000. They're still saying it, it can reach a, a six-figure value value by in the next couple of years. So, and I also know that I've also seen charts that if you ever buy Bitcoin, even at the all-time high. You'll, you'll be in profit within three and a half years. So that's one of the uh, best investments you can make. Also from Coindesk, a little fun little um, story here. Candidate for Minnesota governor releases campaign NFTs. Scott Jensen is minting several NFTs to raise money for his campaign. Dr. Scott Jensen is bringing the Minnesota State Fair to the blockchain. The former state senator and current Republican candidate for Minnesota governor announced the release of two fair-themed non-fungible tokens on Wednesday, claiming to be claiming has to be the first political campaign in history to do so. As various industries scramble to capitalize on the growing interest in NFTs, politicians may be, may well be the next group to enter the digital coin digital collectible space. So Scott Jensen tweeted out, "We are the first political campaign in history to release our own line of NFTs. Check out the first two in our state fair series." The two NFTs make up half of Jensen's Scott and Fair collection, with 25,000 of each edition available for purchase for $5. Purchasing one of the NFTs unlocks access to a rewards program of prizes throughout the campaign, such as the opportunity to meet Jensen and watch a Minnesota Vikings football game with former Viking Matt Burke. Because the purchase constitutes a donation to Jensen's campaign, there are limitations on who can purchase NFTs and in what quantity. Maximum donations are $4,000 per person or $8,000 per couple. Jensen will take on incumbent Governor Tom Walls, a member of the Democrat Farmer Labor Party, in the state's 2022 gubernatorial election. And I love it that he's, this guy's a Republican, because I have seen, and maybe, and, and if, you, if you've seen Democrats 
um, using cryptocurrency or blockchain or NFTs to um, fundraise, please let me know in the description because I want to know if this is a, a partisan issue. Like, all the anecdotes I've seen about politics and cryptocurrency has been on the Republican side. So, please uh, let me know. That's it'll be interesting to see what's going on. Because um, the Republicans in Washington, D.C. are bonkers. They're they're depraved. They're they're just as bad as the Democrats. But I have noticed that at the state level and local level, the Republicans are really, you know, making a difference. They really are distinguishing themselves from the Democrats. So moving on. Let's get angry about Afghanistan and big tech. This is from reclaimthenet.org. Instagram disables account of grieving mother of U.S. Marine Lance Corporal Kareem Nikoi. Shannon Chappell, the mother of U.S. Marine Lance Corporal Kareem Nikoi, who was killed in the August 26th bombing in Kabul, had her Instagram account deleted after she posted a photo and tribute message to her son. Chappell took to Facebook to complain about her Instagram account being deleted. She revealed that the post she made about her son after he was killed in the recent Kabul attack resulted in Instagram flagging her post from months ago. This last picture my son sent, to, sent me of himself, Chapel's post said. It was taken on Sunday. I know I'm still in shock right now. I felt my soul leave my body as I was screaming that it can't be true. No mother, no parent should ever have to hear that their child is gone. Chapel also criticized alleged President Joe Biden on Facebook, saying she felt he was disrespectful when they met. And, holy cow, I'm going to read this if you haven't read it already. It is scathing, and it probably matches the opinion of a lot of Americans. President Joe Biden, this message is for you. I know my face is etched into your brain. I was able to look you straight in the eyes yesterday and have words with you. After I lay my son to rest, you will be seeing me again. Remember, I'm the one who stood five inches from your face and was letting you know I would never get to hug my son again, hear his laugh, and then you tried to interrupt me and give me your own top story, and I have to tell you that isn't a, that this isn't about you, so don't make it about you. Then you said you just wanted me to know that you know how I feel, and I let you know that you don't know how I feel, and you do not have the right to tell me how you, you know how I feel. You then rolled your fucking eyes in your head like you were annoyed with me, and I let you know that the only reason I was talking to you was out of respect for my son, and that was the only reason why. I then proceeded to tell you again how you took my son away from me, and how I will never get to hug him, kiss him, laugh at him again. You turned to walk away, when I let you know my son's blood was on your hands, and you threw your hand up behind you as you walked away from me, like you were saying, okay, whatever. You are not the President of the United States of America, Biden. Cheating isn't winning. You are no leader of any kind. You're a weak human being and a traitor. You turned your back on my son, on all our heroes. You are leaving the White House one way or another, because you do not belong there. My son's blood is on your hands. All 13 of them, their blood is on your hands. If my President Trump was in his rightful seat, then my son and the other heroes would still be alive. You'll be seeing me again very soon. By the way, as my son and the rest of our fallen heroes were being taken off the plane yesterday, I watched you disrespect us all five different times by checking your watch. What the fuck was so important that you had to keep looking at your watch? You are nobody special, Biden. America hates you. I just want to read that because she nails it like 20 different times in that, in that rant. I love it. Soon after her Facebook account 
was restricted, and her Instagram account was deleted. And here are the screenshots saying, Shanna Chapel, account restricted. You have multiple restrictions on your account. This is from this is the Facebook screenshot. And on Instagram it says, your account has been disabled. Your account has been disabled. Follow the next steps within 30 days so you can request a review. This is the post I made on Instagram. The made Instagram disabled my account, Chapel wrote on Facebook. As soon as I posted about what happened to my son, Instagram started pulling up my posts from months ago and sending me notifications that if I kept posting stuff like this, they would disable my account. Posts from months ago. The platform eventually admitted the mistake after being contacted and restored the account. In a statement to reclaim the net, Instagram said, We express our deepest condolences to Miss Chapel and her family. We tr her tribute to her son does not violate any of our policies. While the post was not removed, her account was incorrectly deleted, and we have since restor restored it. So, pay close attention to which um, accounts are del are deleted or or um, disabled. See who um, gets whose accounts those are, and um, raise a stink if you uh, find a pattern. I'm just saying. From the Gateway Pundit, some more alleged President Biden outrage. Justin, bombshell. Leak transcript revealed Biden pressured then Afghan President Ghani to lie about Taliban advances to a downplay crisis. As if it wasn't bad enough for Sleepy Joe already, even the deep state has begun to throw him under the bus for his incompetency in Afghanistan. On Tuesday, Reuters obtained leak. Wow, Reuters. Reuters obtained leaked transcripts of Biden's final call with Ashraf Ghani, the recently departed president of Afghanistan, before the Taliban completed their overthrow of the country. During the call on July 23rd, Ghani communicated how serious the situation was, saying the country was undergoing an assault from a full-scale invasion of about 10,000 to 15,000 international terrorists. He also explained that the Taliban had full logistical support and planning courtesy of Pakistan. Biden paid no attention. He pressured the then-president to create a perception that the Taliban had, hadn't been advancing, advancing at such a rapid pace, whether it's true or not. So, transcript and call. I need not tell you the perception around the world and in parts of Afghanistan. I believe that things are not going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. And there is a need, whether it is true or not, there is a need to project a different picture. Biden then offered Ghani U.S. military aid, including air support, if he agreed to lie about the situation on the ground. He also asked the Afghan president to gather powerful warlords in the area to help change the narrative about the Taliban winning. You clearly have the best military. You have 300,000 well-armed forces versus 70 to 80,000, and they're clearly capable of fighting. Well, we'll we will continue to provide close air support if we know what the plan is and how, what we are doing, he said. But I really think, I don't know whether you're aware, just how much the perception around the world is that this is looking like a losing proposition. Which it is not. Not that it necessarily is that. But so the conclusion I'm asking you to consider is to bring together everyone from former Vice President Abdul Rashid, Dostum, to former President Hamid Karzai, and in between. If they stand there and say they back the strategy you put together and put a warrior in charge, you know, a military man, Khan in charge of executing that strategy, and that will change the perception, I think will change an awful lot, I think. The Afghan president refused Biden's shameless offer. Less than a month after the call, Ghani fled the presidential palace in Kabul, and the government that U.S. forces had built over the past 20 years had officially fallen. Another quid pro quo, perhaps? Sounds like Ukraine all over again. Only this time, 
The country was actively under attack when Biden refused to send help, and 13 U.S. military members are now dead because they were forced to trust the Taliban for their safety. Where are they going to impeach this time, now that they don't have Trump to pin Joe's corruption on? It wasn't just Biden who tried to strong-arm the Afghan government into spreading propaganda. Woke General Mark Milley also pressured Ghani after he refused the first time in a follow-up phone call later that same day. The perception in the United States, in Europe, and the media sort of this thing, and the media sort of thing, is a narrative of Taliban momentum, and narrative of Taliban victory, and we need to collectively demonstrate and try to turn that perception, that narrative, around. I hate that word collectively. I just hate it. It's it's just so communist. In the months leading up to the nightmare Afghanistan evacuation, Biden was telling the public that the withdrawal would be done smoothly and that Washington's Afghan allies were in control. The newly uncovered transcripts confirm that this was never the case. Biden attempting to coerce Ghani to downplay the Taliban advances just proves that he and the State Department has been lying about the crisis in Afghanistan from the beginning. These crooks knew the whole time that Afghan forces were ill-prepared to handle the onslaught of terrorists, especially once they were handed over billions in high-tech weaponry that the U.S. abruptly left in the middle of the night. Biden gave the order to withdraw all troops anyways. His regime has repeatedly claimed that nobody could have known the country would fall into terrorist hands. Biden even reiterated the lie in his address on th Tuesday. The assumption that the Afghan government would be able to hold on for a period of time beyond military drawdown turned out not to be accurate. But I still instructed our national security team to prepare for every eventuality, even that one, and that's what we did. So we were so we were ready when the Afghan security forces, after two decades of fighting for their country, losing thousands of their own, did not hold on as long as anyone expected. So, that's a quote from Biden. Now, after seeing what we have seen so far, do we take that seriously? I ask you. Biden has consistently held the line on the slide, even denying that his own intelligence agencies have predicted the collapse of Afghanistan to the Taliban. The Daily Mail compiled some of his most egregious statements from the past month. I don't think anybody anticipated that, Biden told ABC News when asked about the swift disintegration of the Afghan security forces. It is not inevitable. When Biden was asked if he trusted the Taliban, the president replied, No, but I trust the capacity of the Afghan military, who is better trained, better equipped, and more competent in terms of conduct conducting war. The so-called president was then asked about his own intelligence community's assessment that the Afghan government would likely collapse. That is not true, Biden responded. They did not reach that conclusion. The intelligence community did not say, back in June or July, that in fact this was going to collapse like it did, Biden told ABC News later this month. Biden said that he was not told the Taliban would take over as quickly as they did. Instead, he said, there was a possibility that it, could take more, that it would take more time. Not even close, Biden said. Isn't it sad that we have to, like, turn to foreign press like the Daily Mail? to learn what's going on in our country, in America. Beyond the scenes, Biden and his anti-American regime knew the situation was unstable, but decided to plow ahead with the worst foreign policy debacle in American history anyways. His disastrous decision-making and subsequent slow-talking have led his own intelligence community to begin anonymously leaking transcripts so they can hang their crimes on Biden while shielding the deep state. Biden isn't in charge of anything, but he sheer bears responsibility. The problem is much deeper than him, though. Many people in Washington need to be dragged out there in handcuffs. These people are traitors. Yeah, I mean... 
if Congress did their job, and I'm I'm including the Republicans in that, I would be president. On January 6th, um, the so-called riot in the Capitol was used as, you know, cover for Congress chickening out and not, you know, calling into question the, uh, the election in each different state. That's why we have the Arizona audit going on. So, but just think. All this is going on, and people can see it. You know, President Trump, I do think he's the real president, the, the legitimate one. He took away, he was making peace deals all around the world. Like, he was using economic sanctions, and he was using uh, negotiation and leverage to uh, subdue our enemies, not necessarily, you know, bombs and bullets. He was making peace the right way. He took... He took war off the table, and the deep state would have used a war as a pretense for all sorts of, you know, all sorts of all sorts of tyranny, all sorts of usurpations, similar to what you see at the airports in the TSA. He also took uh, the pandemic off the table. You know, we're going to talk about the vaccine and the mandates pretty quick, but the fact that Trump cut out the red tape and got the vaccine out there and made it available, it totally took away the, um, the presence of a pandemic for locking us all down in our in our houses and shutting down small businesses. Now, I took the vaccine, a lot of people have taken the vaccine, and even Trump and every single governor, state governor, has taken the vaccine. It's not necessarily going to hurt you. What the, Trump, what the uh, deep state is trying to do is use it as um, get their get the camel's nose in the tent to to um enable more usurpations. So you should have a choice in whether or not whether or not you want to take it. So um so let's talk about the vaccine and how big tech is sneaking it in. From reclaimthenet.org again, Open Table seeks to normalize vaccine passports with new integration. Self diners easily provide proof of vaccination at restaurants. Last week, the popular restaurant booking app, OpenTable, announced that it would introduce a new feature allowing its clients to easily implement vaccine mandates and users to show proof of vaccination. The news comes as more cities in the U.S. and the rest of the world mandate vaccine passports for outdoor and indoor venues and events. OpenTable is ignoring concerns about civil liberties and said it was partnering with the security company Clear which provides a digital vaccine certification system. To help diners easily provide proof of vaccination at restaurants, OpenTable and security, Secure Identity Company Clear are partnering to offer diners a simple way to show proof of vaccination through Clear's digital vaccine card, the restaurant booking app said last week, link, linking to a new blog post to announce the initiative. OpenTable will allow restaurants to indicate whether they have vaccine passports. To use the new feature, users will have to create a Clear account through the OpenTable web app or mobile app. The next step will be connecting their COVID-19 vaccine certificate with OpenTable, which they can then present at establishments with vaccine mandates. Such developments are in anticipation that more cities and jurisdictions will implement vaccine mandates as the controversial and invasive system becomes normalized around the world. So far in the U.S., three major cities have vaccination mandates, Los Angeles, 
New York, and San Francisco. OpenTable's new vaccine certification feature might be used in these cities and even by restaurants and other areas that are yet to implement mandates, but have not prohibited their implementation by private businesses. So, the way, this, the way, the way it's going on is, in some countries, the governments are mandating the vaccines. In the United States, the government can't get away with that, especially at the state level. So the government is leaning on corporations to, to mandate it, either for their customers or for their employees. So, um, oh, restaurants. I saw a meme on Facebook, and I shared it on my personal profile, but I think I'll share it on my, um, on my you know, professional page, too. There's, it says the effect, the people who are going to get a vaccine, get a vaccine passport, are not the kind, are not the people who would have supported a restaurant during during the lockdowns. They're the kind of people who would have just been happy happy enough to um let the restaurants go out of business while they stay at home. The people who would who did support your restaurants and who will support your restaurants are the people who don't want to get the vaccine mandate. Who don't want to get the passport. So think about that. I'm misquoting it, but you'll um see if you can follow my Facebook account. Yeah, this next article, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's the Washington Post, and it's from back in the end of July. But they're, but they're understanding here that vaccine, ma vaccine mandates will backfire. People will resist even more. And the subtitle says, persuading, not dictating, is how Biden can avoid a crisis of legitimacy. Well, his crisis of legitimacy started in the, on November 4th, 2020, so... Why, why the hell not? In recent weeks, calls for vaccine mandates have increasingly been heard. In the column headlined, Stop Pleading with Anti-Vaxxers and Start Mandating Vaccinations, Washington Post's Max Boot implored President Biden to stop making reasonable appeals to those who will not listen to reason. Former Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius lamented that we're going to tiptoe around mandates. And she's kind of over that. A coalition of medical professional organizations, including the American Medical Association, has asked for all healthcare and long-term care employers to require their employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Meanwhile, there's a top-down push to get reluctant citizens vaccinated. The White House and the Department of Education partnered with colleagues, colleges and universities on the COVID college vaccine challenge. On Monday, the Department of Veterans Affairs became the first federal agency to mandate vaccinations for more than 100,000 of its employees. On Thursday, I announced that federal civilian that civilian federal workers must be vaccinated or submit to regular coronavirus testing. Okay, but here's where it gets interesting. But if this rhetoric and these efforts lead to a de facto national vaccine mandate, it will backfire. Americans from all walks of life resist being told what to put in their bodies. And many will resent any politician or institution that makes them get vaccinated, creating crisis of legitimacy for any government, university, or business that forces constituents students, or employees to get vaccinated. Indeed, the president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association has already said there will be a lot of pushback from members of his organization against the federal employee mandate. There's been a lot of hand-wringing about partisan vaccine resistance. According to a recent economist YouGov poll, 29% uh, of Republicans say they won't get vaccinated, compared to 4% of Democrats. But that doesn't tell the whole story. In mid-June, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, when parents of children ages 12 and older, the youngest group authorized for vaccination, were asked by Kaiser family if they would get their children vaccinated, 18% said they would wait and see, 
10% say they would if required, and 25% said definitely not. As 538's Jeff Jeffrey Skelly explains, unvaccinated Americans tend to be younger and more likely to be a person of color. The situation we're in is not just because of politics, but also because of access to the vaccine and broader skepticism of the healthcare system. And that's on full blast after last week when the um, when the FDA approved you know the uh, Pfizer vaccine supposedly, and everyone saw, oh, just what the FDA approves throughout history, and they're starting to wonder if you know. FDA approval is more of a business transaction than a um, an actual scientific procedure. You know, people just don't trust institutions anymore. I was listening to um, Chrissy Mayer's podcast yesterday, and she had on, what's his name? I can't remember his name, but this um, he's a frequent guest on the Timcast IRL pod, uh, live stream podcast. And they were just talking about how institu- institutions, like big organizations, they just don't really have any legitimacy anymore. They have been corrupted over many decades, probably since the 1960s, from the bottom up, and it's reached the head now. So the the preferable thing, if you need to organize large groups of people, don't trust an institution. Trust a network. Build a network. Get all you know. Get get all your friends and family together, all like-minded individuals on the internet or social media or your email list. And talk to each other. Um, coordinate. Build a consensus among yourselves. You know, and also if you follow uh, Dr. Steve Trilly, his channel, uh, he's a very great conservative commentator. He, back when the um, election process was still going on, he explained things very well on how, you know, the Constitution regulates presidential elections and how this one was totally blown up. And screwed up. But Dr. Steve Turley, he, he talks often about how we're moving away from a mass society to a network society. A mass society is when you have to go into like certain population centers like big cities. Like if you want to get into finance or or investing, you have to move to Wall Street. You have to get a job and live in New York and Wall Street. If you want to get into entertainment, you have to move to Hollywood. If you have to if you want to like have a career in country music, you have to move to Nashville. If you want to if you want to uh, have a career in software and tech, you have to move. To, you have to live in Silicon Valley. That's the old paradigm. Now, thanks to the internet, we're moving into a network society where people can live and work wherever, thanks to and just be on their computer. You can have an online business. You can build an online community, regardless of geography, more dependent on common language or common ideas. And you can you can you can succeed anywhere. So we are you know we are approaching a time where all of these uh, big corporations are going to be obsolete. But let's move on to the next story and see what's going on here. Oh yes, vaccine passports increase rebellion against vaccines. A major UK study finds. So it's not just the United States where people are. Rejecting the vaccine mandates. It's the um, it's in it's in Europe. It's in the uh, it's in the UK. It's in the uh, Commonwealth countries. COVID vaccine skeptics are more hesitant to get vaccinated after COVID nineteen passports are implemented. A major new UK study has found. In the survey, young individuals, individuals from non-white communities, 
and people with limited English proficiency had lower levels of immunization and a negative attitude toward vaccine passports. At the time of the poll, the majority of respondents had not yet received vaccine. As a result of these findings, UK ministers have been set back concerning their plans to enact a contentious vaccine passport policy for nightclubs due to take effect at the end of the month in the hope to boost youth participation in the vaccine. The survey accounted for more than 16,000 individuals and is due to be published in the Lancet Journal of Eclinical Medicine. Beginning in September, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson plans to make vaccine passports mandatory for crowded indoor events in the UK, including nightclubs. There appears to be a large number of conservative backbenchers opposed any further attempts to impose the passport. So far, little details are known, but the Prime Minister's spokesperson stated yesterday that plans to introduce vaccine passports will go ahead as normal, saying we set out broadly our intention to require vaccination for nightclubs and some other settings. We'll be coming forward in the coming weeks with detail for that. Even after backlash from his MPs, Boris Johnson remains committed to the policy, so... So... Boris Johnson, he's, he's in the Conservative Party. A lot of Conservative you know, members of Parliament are dragging their feet on the vaccine passports. He's going full steam ahead, which means either someone has some leverage on him, or he's a total sellout. So, a total of 16,527 participants took part in the study, and more than 85% said COVID passports would not affect the current vaccination decision. 12.2% indicated they would not receive a vaccination if passports were made available. In a summary, the authors of the report warned that the clear divide in opinion could lead to a public split. This creates a risk of creating a divided society, wherein the majority are relatively secure, but there remain pockets of lower vaccination where outbreaks can still occur, they stated. The leaders of the hospitality industry have openly criticized the Prime Minister's plans to require vaccine passports for nightclubs and other so-called crowded venues. In the wake of the proposals, nightclub industry leaders have called it a chaotic U-turn and a bad idea. Eight out of ten nightclubs also expressed concern that vaccine passports would further harm their business. In addition, several backbenchers are opposed to the misguided use of the records and are horrified that their daily lives will be handicapped by such restrictions. Now, when it comes to the uh, nightclub industry, I might have read the story, covered the story in a previous pod, in a previous episode. Yeah, 80% of nightclubs say they'll reject draconian COVID passports. I think I mentioned that in my um, Arrest Boris Johnson video. Link in my YouTube page. Now, that's the public sentiment in the UK. Let's look at Australia, because Australia, they've really been bringing the hammer down on the people. Um, they're kind of using it as like a test, test area for for pandemic, you know, regulations and vaccine mandates. And I think a lot of their Australian people are kind of like being quiet about what they think. I don't believe for a second they're, they, they agree to this. From DC Clothesline, Australian truckers planning major strike to protest authoritarian COVID lockdowns, advising citizens to stock up in advance. This is from a few days ago. This is from August 26th probably last week. Australian truckers appear to be banding together to shut down their, their country's economy in protest of authoritarianism and tyranny over COVID-19 lockdowns and other pointless mandates given that the continent isn't suffering many infections at all. 
one of the truckers, an unidentified man, posted a short video to social media making the announcement while advising his fellow citizens to get busy and stock up before the end of the month when the strike is set to begin. Caution. Strong language. Oh, I've already... Landed a couple F-bombs already, so what's, the, so what's the harm? Good morning, Australia, the man begins, brushing back his white hair. I just fucking woke up. We've been telling everyone around the world, everyone, and everyone around Australia, it's on. The truckers are doing it, he continued. We need you and everyone else in support to watch this video, hand it up, and let everyone in Australia know the truckies are going to shut down the country, the man continued. What that means is you need to go shopping now, get what you can for the next week or two, load your fridge, freezers. The truckies are coming, and they're going to pull this country down. We're all going to do it together and remove the shit government, the man went on. The vets are in, the truckies are in, I'm in, I'm willing to go to jail to save my country and my children. If you want to do this, you got you to gotta do it together as one, he added. The man went on to talk about the poison that is the COVID virus, and specifically that China developed it with U.S. funding, and that most governments were aware of it. In addition, truckers are also upset about wages and have other differences with Toll, a multi-billion dollar transport company, after talks broke down with the Transport Workers Union. Menace Insider Australia reports, Australia will need to brace for major disruptions from Friday, as it experiences its first road transport strike in more than a decade. Thousands of truck drivers will go on strike on Friday after negotiations broke down between the multi-billion dollar logistics company Toll and the Transport Workers Union. The industrial action, supported by 94% of the workforce, will see workers pack it in for a full 24 hours, grinding deliveries to a halt and creating a wave of backlogs and delays. It's an abomination that billionaire retailers like Amazon are, slashing pro are smashing profit records while ripping off transport supply chains and crushing the jobs of truck drivers who have risked their health and their, of their families to deliver parcels and keep shelf stock, TW National Secretary Michael Keane told the outlet. Toll workers need guarantees that they won't be sliced and diced Qantas style and replaced by a cut-price underemployed workforce. They don't want to go on strike, especially during a pandemic, but they must because they have everything to lose, he continued. Toll's behavior is reprehensible. The transport giant is responsible for two crises at the same time. A cruel attack on good, safe transport jobs and mass disruption to food and fuel supplies, Kane added. Both of these disasters would have been fixed today if Toll had taken a reasonable approach to back down on plants to trash jobs and drag down standards on Australia's deadliest industry. Another report said the deliveries of food and other high-demand, high-value commodities are going to be in short supply as well. The decision to strike also comes as Australian authorities have begun cracking down on their own citizens over COVID so-called violations, like trying to rescue a dog or sneezing unmasked in an elevator. This is a power move by a population, fed up with police violence and government despotism, and one can only hope nothing untoward will happen, and the government indeed stands down and leaves the halls of power so the people of Australia can rise in freedom once again. A breakthrough for the rest of the world as well, um, our greater destiny noted. So, so the truckers are going on strike and they're taking a stand. Now, they say the police in Australia are doing government's bidding. And this is probably a topic for another time, but you gotta wonder why police and military employees, why they go along with such, you know, unethical, unconstitutional, anti-freedom, you know, policies that the government, you know, imposes on them. Why do they, why do they, why do they enforce them instead of 
setting up to do the right thing. I do think it goes back to economics. I do think it involves, you know, it all goes traces back to the um, the central bank system and how we're all on the hamster wheel for weaker and weaker diminishing wages that lose their purchasing power over time. And I also I also have a book that's on my bookshelf titled the um, the Dictator's Handbook, and um, I don't remember everything, but I remember one interesting detail. A lot of times in corrupt governments, like in like totalitarian regimes, or even corrupt governments in corrupt cities in the in the Western world, police and military are often horribly underpaid. You know, they 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 make or they they barely make a living wage, and that actually you would think you know the the corrupt governments want to pay them more. They actually pay them less to make them desperate and eager to do anything to, to get by. So if they're not making as much money, they might be more willing to take on some extra, take on some dirty work in order to get some extra money on the side. Something to think about. I think we'll have, you know, we, we've had so many um, revelations this year. I do think that revelation is probably the cure. This is just a theory, this is just a theory so far, but Put a pin to that. Now, you're wondering, why are the powers of be? Why are the why are the world's governments so frantic about a vac the vaccine mandates? Why are they why do they want everyone to to um take the vaccine? Why do they want everyone to um have the card and show their papers? Well, a few of you might have seen this. And this is a very long article, I won't read the whole thing, but it has something to do with the uh, COVID test kits, or so-called test kits. This is from naturalnews.com. It's a very long article, and I won't read the whole thing. But, Health and Human Services documents admit the CDC has never isolated any COVID-19 virus. So the PCR tests, nothing but instrument noise. The global hoax is rapidly unraveling. Basically, the so-called COVID-19 tests that we've been using for the past year and a half, they don't actually they don't actually detect COVID-19. You might have COVID-19 if you test positive, or you might just have a flu. The current tests that we have don't know the difference. Now, you are getting in the U.S. We are getting some new you know tests, more accurate testing kits in November and this actually in December. I think December 31st. Once those test kits are out, and enough of the population has not had the vaccine and they test positive for say the flu instead of COVID, we're gonna see how, how prevalent COVID-19 actually is. And if enough people are not vaccinated, the whole narrative of 2020 is gonna go up in smoke. This is why they're so frantic. This is why the government's so frantic to um, get everyone vaccinated because it'll be easier to hide. So let's read, let's read part of the story here. In this article, no isolated certi certified reference materials for COVID-19 virus. PCR tests that find positive results for COVID merely the result of amplified instrument background. FDA admits PCR tests were developed without any isolated COVID-19 virus samples, so they simulated the virus. Virologist Dr. Judy Mikovits confirms common coronaviruses, such as, you know, the cold and flu, and monkey viruses fraudulently labeled COVID. Dr. Jane Ruby, 
explains the lack of any viral isolate and why the pandemic is based on coordinated science fraud. CDC Freedom of Information Act documents reveal proof that COVID the CDC has never isolated COVID-19. The spike bi protein bioweapon is real. The COVID vaccines are kill shots to achieve depopulation. CDC Director Walensky admits the COVID vaccine doesn't stop COVID infections. Senator Rand Paul calls for Americans to resist COVID's hearing. So, last year when COVID skeptics were saying there's no such thing as a COVID virus, I strongly disagreed. As a published food scientist, laboratory owner, and inventor of two published patents based on mass spectrometry analysis, I was aware that SARS-CoV-2 have been genomically sequenced. Surely, I mistakenly thought, it had been isolated, purified, and determined to be the cause of COVID-19 sickness. A year later, it turns out the skeptics were right. And the warnings of people like Dr. Thomas Cohen, Sally Fallon, Dr. Andrew Kaufman, John Rappaport, David Icke, and others were right on the mark. And I have since apologized to them on the public podcast. This article is written by Mike Adams. Now, I don't go so far to say as, you know, COVID is a hoax, but, I mean, if you test positive, you could have it. But it's probably not nearly as widespread as the, as the government corporate media complex wants to believe. So, so should, now there, this article is saying that the vaccine is a, um, is a depopulation tool. I'm I'm not quite ready to believe that for the first and second doses. Otherwise, Trump, President Trump wouldn't have gotten it out there. Um, now, they're talking about booster shots, third, fourth, yearly doses of the vaccine, of the of the of the jab of the jab. We really shouldn't call it a vaccine because it's not actually a vaccine, it's more of a it's mRNA uh, medicine or drug. It's gonna be the ongoing, you know, shots that'll either kill you or make you infertile. And if they can get away with that, you know, it's going to be like the, um, the camel's nose of the tent. If they think if they get away with that, they can probably get away with anything. So that's why we have to like hold the line. I, I'm going to say I'm lying here. I'm not getting any more COVID shots. I'm, I'm drawing the line. So, and if my, and if my family wants to, uh, give me crap, then I'm not, oh, I don't know. If your employer wants to give you crap about it, here's 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 the thing. I just posted this on Facebook. If your employer threatens to fire you if you don't get a jab, keep working and let them fire you. That way you can get a, unemployment. And if they don't end up firing you, if they chicken out, hey, you, you've called their bluff. So, and if you have to get on, say if you're like, if you, if, they're mandating like a passport for you to get on a plane or come into their store. You, you don't want any trouble with your ground level employees. Just tell them what I told you about holding around and making sure they don't fire you. So there's that. We got to start taking back, taking back language. And I might talk about that in another post. So. This is 1938, first that came from the unvaccinated. This is from townhall.com. Wayne Allen Root. And this, 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 this piece is blowing up all around the, the uh, internet. I'm going to share it with you in case you haven't read it. So just Google 
Wayne Allen wrote in 1938. This is the most co important commentary I've ever written. It's time for alarm bells. It's time for me to play the part of Paul Revere. The communist tyrants and dictators are coming. The communist tyrants and dictators are coming. They're coming first for unvaccinated Americans. This is 1938. I'm a Jew. I now understand just a little of what it felt like to be a Jew in 1938. No, it's not the Holocaust. Nothing can be compared to the Holocaust ever. Well, 1938 was not the Holocaust. It was the pre-Holocaust. It was the time before the nightmare. But the foundation was being laid to destroy the foundation was being laid to destroy the freedom, free speech, businesses, and lives of millions of Jews. Everything happening today to the American people, to the U.S. Constitution, to freedom, and particularly to unvaccinated Americans, reminds me of 1938. This is only the beginning. It gets much worse from here. First, the papers. Vaccine mandates and vaccine passports are just like 1938, when the Gestapo demanded papers from every German. Republicans asked for papers from migrants who had broken into the country. Criminals. The Democrats said, no, that's racism. Republicans asked for papers once every two years for federal elections, and to prove you have a right to vote. The Democrats said, no, that's racism. Now Democrats want American citizens, not illegal aliens, not criminals, but patriots born in this country, to produce papers 24-7. We'll need papers to enter restaurants, bars, nightclubs, concerts, casinos, conventions, and hotels, and to board a train, plane, or bus. We'll need papers to enter a supermarket, or we'll starve to death. All for the crime of being unvaccinated against, wait for it, the flu. All for the crime of being unwilling to inject an untested, Russian production, experimental, for emergency use only, shot into our bodies. What happened to the war cry of the Democrats, my body, my choice? It only applies to murdering babies. But it doesn't apply to dangerous experimental shots that we don't want injected into our bodies. Weren't the Jews injected with experimental drugs by the depraved Nazi government? Wasn't that a key part of the Nuremberg trials? that no government could ever again inject experimental shots into the bodies of unwilling citizens? Isn't that a basic human right? By the way, this isn't a vaccine. If you want the vaccine, take it. I would never stop you. I, I would never limit your freedom, your choice. This is about vaccine mandates. Forcibly injecting back Americans who don't want it. That's 1938. But there's much more in, com but there's much more in common with 1938. Mask mandates. If you're scared, wear them. I'm not scared. I don't want to wear them. Mandates are about forcing individuals to lose their freedom, choice, individuality, and human rights. That's 1938. Lockdowns are a match with the Warsaw Ghetto. Jews were locked down. Jews couldn't work. Jews couldn't travel. Jewish businesses were labeled non-essential. If government can force us to close our businesses, to kill our jobs, to decide who is non-essential, then this is 1938. Stars on clothing. It's coming. Vaccinated, vaccinated, get into restaurants, bars, concerts, supermarkets, planes and trains. They keep their jobs. The rest of us are marked as subhuman for life. That's the star. That's 1938. Media and social media is the public relations wing of the government. That's called propaganda. Remind you of 1938? Back then, Jesus' books were burned. Today, it's those of conservatives, patriots, and specifically the unvaccinated. We are silence. Our facts are labeled misleading. Only the facts that agree with big government's agenda count. That's 1938. Door-to-door -door intimidation and making a list of those who disagree with the government knows best. Trust me, that army of door-to-door -door vaccine brainwashers 
will soon be turned into a Gestapo of gun grabbers. 1938 was the year Nazis banned the Jews from owning guns. They took, they took them to her door. That's 1938. Only days ago, a former Department of Homeland Security official said that unvaccinated would be, should be on the federal no-fly list. That's exactly how Nazis attacked the Jews and others who disagreed with their agenda. It was always lists. Lists of people to be disappeared in the middle of the night. Lists of those who were, silent, who were sent to re-education camps. Lists of those to be sent to concentration camps. Lists of enemies of the state. It's happened again. Maybe this time you only lose your job or free speech. This is, again, 1938. It's all disgusting and disgraceful. But I'm warning you, this is just the start. It's all going downhill from here. Fast. This is the end of America. This is 1938. Unless we stop it now. Unless we take a stand now. Unless we draw a line in the sand now. First, I came for the unvaccinated. Trust me, next, they're coming for you. So. It's bad. They are getting rid of all pretenses. It's going crazy. But I do want us to think positive. This means they're desperate. This means they're losing the argument. This means we got to keep the pressure up. So if you have a library card or if you have a Google account, just go ahead and uh, download um, Civil Disobedience. I think it's by Thoreau. The great American transcendentalists. Let's move on to some lighter stuff, supposedly. A lot of people don't want a career. And they probably don't want to, they might not want a career if their employer's mandating the vaccine, but there's there's a lot more to it. This article is by Charlie Warzel of uh, Galaxy Brains through um, Substack or um, Pocket. I got the link from Pocket. The email link for Pocket, and I guess it's also links to a Substack. So here's this: In all my reporting on the future of work, one of the most interesting and potentially profound trends is the growing skepticism around careers. Careerist has long been a dirty word in the working world. Usually, it's meant to signify a cynical ladder ladder climbing mentality. A careerist isn't a team player. They care more about the job title and advancement than the job itself. The current brand of career skepticism I'm talking about is different, more absolute. It's not a rejection of how somebody navigates the game, it's a rejection of the game itself. The idea isn't limited to a specific age group, but the best articulation of it comes from younger millennials and working age Gen Zers, the Zoomers. Many of them are fed up with their jobs and they're quitting in droves. Even those with jobs are reevaluating their options. An August job seeking survey found that 55% of respondents who were actively employed plan to look for a new job within the next year. The millions are unemployed. At the end of June, job openings surged to an all-time high. While labor protections are still weak and haven't caught up to the parameters of modern work, the COVID job reshuffling feels like a bit of the beginnings of a changing power dynamic. Employees have a tiny bit of leverage right now, and many are using it to send a message about how the status quo of modern work feels exhausting and unsustainable. People are quitting jobs across class and industry lines. Perhaps the most famous example is the nobody wants to work anymore meeting that bounced around Twitter in April. The meme kicked off after a TikTok user named uh, BrittanyJade903 posted a video of a McDonald's drive-thru sign which read, We are short-staffed. Please be patient with the staff that did show up. Nobody wants to work anymore. It triggered a whole series of posts about low wages and worker exploitation 
that I quickly grew beyond the service industry. In May, I ended up on Burnout TikTok, where every fifth video offered withering commentary on the futility and frustration, frustration of toiling away for long hours at a job they didn't particularly like. I can't find the video anymore, but the one that sticks in my head was a TikToker venting about how the idealized career is, when you think about it, a raw deal. It went something like this. You, you, you devote the bulk of every day for 30 to 40 years in the prime of your life to various companies to make them and their shareholders money. And then you get 10 years near the end of your life to do as you please. Sounds like a bad arrangement. Perhaps my favorite articulation came from YouTuber Catherout and the title of her May 2021 video, I no longer aspire to have a career. Aspire is the key word here. It's not that she rejects labor. She rejects how central it is to our sense of self and worth. Catherine's idea is frequently misunderstood and dismissed as laziness, entitlement, and or lack of ambition. That's wrong. And I think we dismiss it at our own peril. To illustrate why, I'll use, I'll use a particularly egregious example from a recent article in Fortune. The piece, which ran with the headline, Want to work 9 to 5? Good luck building your career. It starts off with the writer firing her first ever direct report. Her specific reasons for terminating the employee are pretty vague. She cites that the employee has, was low energy and a bad speller. Not sure those are standard fireable offenses. And then she confesses that what ultimately led him to the axe was his insistent on insistence on boundaries. The dude apparently came in at the beginning of the workday, 9 a.m., and left at the end of it, 5 p.m. And this was simply unacceptable. Aside, this is a fantastic example about just how warped our conceptions of work have become. Only in a truly broken system could working the agreed-upon hours be reframed as rich, erecting a rigid, dangerous set of boundaries. I'm not going to waste too much time about the author's argument that work-life balance has gone too far, and an emphasis on self-care as an example of woke work environment, because I think that's purposely, purposefully contrary. But there's value in the lessons she chooses to draw from her low-energy employee, namely that work-life balance is dangerous to career. A work-life balance that truly divides the work and life components of a person's experience may be okay for a job, but for a career, it simply won't fly. There's no disputing it. Sometimes emails need to be sent at night. Sometimes calls need to be taken early in the morning. Sometimes a Monday deadline necessitates a few hours of work on uh, Saturday. The examples the writer sets forth here are, are reasonable. Life is chaotic and unpredictable. Emergencies happen. Offices depend, to varying degrees, on collaboration. If an employer refuses to collaborate, it's easy to imagine their personal preferences might start to hurt or inconvenience those around them. That sucks. Now, maybe the writer's employee was a, a true disrespectful asshole. They exist in some workplaces. If so, you'd imagine the writer would have included an example of a very unreasonable request the employee refused, which then caused undue burden or stress to the whole team. But she didn't provide any. That she didn't do that leads me to think that the problem may have come from poor management. Good management is about clear communication and expectation setting. In this case, a good manager might say, Hey, so this sucks, but it looks like we're going to need to put in some extra overtime the next week on X project. I know this isn't ideal, but I wanted to tell you in advance to give you time to plan around it. Then the manager should offer to compensate for the extra work with overtime or a comp pay. In the event that the job demands constant communication as an always-on-call mentality, a problem probably actually doesn't, then this should be communicated in the interview process, where a lot of expectation setting set takes place. I don't get the sense, or the sense the writer cares about the employee's specific offenses, though. 
Throughout the piece, she seems more interested in the objects surrounding work than the work itself. She never mentions that the fired employee successfully performed the job he was paid to do. She did, however, mention his lack of energy. She doesn't frame his feelings in terms of productivity, but instead, in terms of enthusiasm, he was not bought in. This, for a classic bad manager, is a cardinal sin. Being bought in is perhaps the, is more important than the work itself. This dynamic came up in a lot of our book reporting. Employees who don't show enough deference to the company, and most importantly to the manager, are seen as a liability. <coughs> Sometimes, especially if they're not white or male enough, these employees are deemed a bad culture fit, a garbage term that's often needs an excuse to get rid of employees who threaten the status quo or make managers uncomfortable. Other times, as the writer does here, the employees are branded as wallowing in ugly mediocrity. This is where the career comes in. In this instance, the career is the device that businesses and managers can use as a motivation to get the deference and feign enthusiasm that they want, and often feel they need, from employees. It's a great tool, in part because career arcs are real. Perceptions and reputations matter, and offices have promotional structures that workers want to move up. But the career concept is also frequently abused and lured over employees. What is built as mentorship and training, here's how we do things, here's how to get ahead, can quickly turn into intimidation or even a vague threat against the person's future. Don't cross me or it'll cost you. It's entirely possible that the author of the fortune piece didn't mean to frame her article as a threat, but it sure comes off that way. The author framed her employee's decision to put boundaries between his work and personal life as a fundamental weakness. She's not alone. Many in positions of power misinterpret those who strive for a better relationship to work as weak or selfish. I'd argue that they, what they really want is obedience, or for one worker to do the work of one-and-a-half workers without more pain. Here's a tweet by um, Lord Businessman. The best advice I can give as someone who has left corporate and white-collar firm work behind is that no one who said they cared about my career gave one fuck about my career. And, and the author of this article responds, What's instructive about this, though, is the focus on the career. If there's anything I've picked up from the younger generation in my reporting, it's a reflective skepticism of careerism. Not because people don't want to work, but because they recoil at the, the idea of mortgaging chunks of their lives. The mo back to the article. The modern understanding of a career in most knowledge work fields involves a non-trivial amount of sacrifice. You're expected to pay your dues, work your way up, and ride out the rough patches. Endurance is key. If you stick it out long enough, there's something great on the other side. Primarily security. Even jobs where management is less cynical and exploitative, Focus is always on the long term. It might suck now, but you're building towards something. And that's something, the resume at the end of your life, is a genuine measure of, per of a person's worth. What the career skeptics are asking is a simple question. What if all that reasoning and endurance language is bullshit? What if, instead of working towards something for decades and barely tolerating the day-to-day -day process, we created a different value system around labor? What if we built our working lives around a concept other than endurance and submission? In her, in her YouTube video, Catherine outputs it like this. In reality, 40 years is a long-ass time. Fix something at 22 and stick with it. It actually concerns me to do the same thing for 40 years. It does not give me safety and comfort. Jobs aren't designed for you to love them. That's not the point. The point is to give you income so you can participate in society, and most people can't accept that. When you talk to people who reject the modern notion of career, many of them say the same thing. 
They crave, they crave more balance, less precarity, and better pay. They also, crucially, want to work. But they want to work for places that see them as three-dimensional human beings, and they actually invest in them and their futures without expecting workers to sacrifice everything. They want to be part of organizations that recognize the meaning, that meaningful and collaborative work can bring dignity and create value. But that work is by no means the only way to cultivate satisfaction and self-worth. As one reader told me, most of us don't mind hard work and putting in the necessary time. When we are respected, valued, communicated, and honestly, paid right. When I first tweeted about this Fortune article, I received some understandable criticism. In my own work life, I tend to have a hard time drawing boundaries. I often work way more than 40 hours a week, which might render my argument a bit hypocritical. I get that. But I think the argument misses the, larger, the bigger point. I do struggle all the time with work-life balance. But even though I'm incredibly lucky and love my job, many of my habits are still guided by a fucked-up hustle mentality that is driven by fear and anxiety of missing opportunities, of losing my job, of being branded as lazy or mediocre, and frankly, I want better for others. What's profound about career rejectionists is that their guiding questions are simple. What if work didn't make you feel awful? What if work, what if like, what would life be like if we didn't live to work? What do workers and employers actually owe each other? What if we structured our work lives around a different idea of success? It's not a full-scale rejection of capitalism, though it could be that, or a call to burn down the system altogether. Those questioning their careers are simply daring to imagine what a better, more equitable future of work might look like. I don't know exactly if this energy will keep up, but I don't believe it's a fluke. The pandemic has, the pandemic has left people sick, tired, exhausted, and rattled. It has also changed people's priorities and upended their notions of what is possible. For the first time in a while, they're starting to ask big questions about the status quo. People in charge ought to be listening. So, thank you for this piece, Mr. Charlie Warzel. Um... If I can add to that, it all traces back to the Federal Reserve, to the central banks. Ever since 1971, the correlation between productivity and workers' wages has split off. I've, I've seen charts before on social media. A few years ago, they tried to blame it on, Reagan, on Reaganomics, but it really started with Nixon in 1971, when he took the dollar off the gold standard. With the devaluing of the, of the dollar and... All the moving of manufacturing jobs to other countries and leaving Americans with, you know, service work. People have earned, have had smaller and small, smaller real wages. I've um, covered this in another, another uh, episode. Um, it's just at the point now, thanks to the pandemic and thanks to the um, desperate desperation of the um, of the deep state, it's visible now. So people are um, taking a step back and saying, hey, let's rethink things here. I had that moment way back in 2015 when I was at a really stuff, stuffed up, um, buttoned down job at the insurance company and I was working so hard that I developed acid reflux. And that's when I started, around the same time I was starting my um, web design business, and I thought, if I start my own business, and I support smaller businesses, I can choose my own hours, I can charge my own hourly rate, I can live on my own terms. Why am I in this, you know, corporate Death Star? Why am I stuck at a desk when I can be, when I can work from anywhere? I had, I had that mindset 
like six, five or six years ago. People are people are catching up, so there's that. I think we'll uh, skip this one. But let's talk about running a business. Tell me in the comments. Would you like Would you like advice on run, running an online business? Would you like more of that content? Would you also like in, content about investing? Because not everyone's cut out to have a business, but maybe you want to um, invest in someone else's business and get some passive income through that. So invest in real estate, invest in startups. Tell me what you think. This is from ElegantThemes.com. These are the makers of the WordPress theme Divi, which is per, my current choice of WordPress themes. A WordPress theme is what lets you um, design the layout of your website, the, the, the overall design. And Divi is a really good one. It's a good um, value for, the, for your money. And Elegant Themes, who make Divi, they have a great blog that deals a lot with um, marketing, running a business, and building a WordPress website. You really ought to check it out. So, um... In this article, it tells you how to run email campaign for your WordPress dashboard with MailPoet. And one of the most important things you can have in your business is an email list. Um, if you if you purchase um, something, anything off of my um, shop, you'll have the option to join my newsletter. So you'll get updates to my, um, to my blog posts and my um, YouTube and my videos and podcasts. And you'll also get special offers. So... Consider that to build to build an email list, you need the right you know software, and there's a plugin called MailPoet. Let's do that. A plugin is basically a WordPress app. If you if you build your website on WordPress and you can do that with um, a freelancer from Fiverr or you can go to a click on the link to Vandas and they'll set you up. If your website's built up with WordPress, there are apps called plugins. They'll do just about anything you want. So we're going to talk about MailPoet, which is a um, email marketing plugin. There are a lot of email marketing services you can choose from as a WordPress user. Although many are fantastic, they also force you to leave the WordPress admin space. To design and send emails, you have to log into another platform and learn how to use it. That's not the case with MailPoet. Using the MailPoet plugin, you can design and schedule marketing emails right within your WordPress dashboard, right within the the dashboard of your WordPress website. In this article, we'll introduce you to the plugin, talk about its features, and show you how it works. So I'll, I'll read the introduction. Well, you can go to Elgin Themes blog and read more about it. <clears throat> MailPoet is an email and newsletter plugin, but that definition hardly does it just, justice. It enables you to create an email list signup form. It enables you to create email list signup forms, design campaigns, schedule messages, and more. In a nutshell, MailPoet can accomplish most, if not all, of the same tasks other email marketing services, such as MailChimp and Aweber. What sets it apart, though, is that you can interact with MailPoet mostly within your WordPress dashboard. It is a plugin, after all. The plugin introduces, includes support for WooCommerce. WooCommerce is the um, plugin that enables that turns your website into an online store. The plugin includes support for WooCommerce transactional emails out of the box. And you can also use it to send abandoned cart and follow-up messages. With MailPoet, you can get access. You can get access to an intuitive email builder that builds with a block editor. The plugin also comes with a library of templates that you can use to kickstart your next email campaign. As far as deliver, deliverability goes, MailPoet enables you to use its own service or connect the plugin to other uh, providers such as SendGrid. Those features are available for, for free, 
But you can also access MailPoet's premium plan at no cost unless you have, if you have less than 1,000 subscribers. With the premium plan, you can remove the plugin's logo from your email footer and check who's opening and clicking on your emails. So, so consider that if you're building a WordPress website and building your email list. Now let's go to um, HubSpot, a very popular marketing service. Gives us some ideas on how to build an email list from scratch. So 10 incredibly effective strategies. You can create a personalized call to action for each blog or landing page. So if you have your own blog, you need to create like a little blurb called a called a call to action that'll tell you about tell your visitors about your um about your email list, but ask them to sign up for your email or offer them a little gift called a lead magnet. Create a pop-up. Number two, create a pop-up or a slider for each page on your site. A pop-up might sound initially bothersome, but we're not talking about those easy 2000 pop, early 2000 pop-ups that promise you to become a model now. Um, you can have like a timed pop-up ad or on-site party. Now, um, MailPoet allows you to do that. Um, Elgin Themes, they also have a couple of their own plugins. One's um, Monarch and um, Bloom. I forget which is which. One of them is an email marketing uh, plugin. The other is a social media marketing plugin. Both of those are pretty good too. And if you and if you uh, purchase a plan with the Elgin Themes to get Debbie, you'll also have access to those plugins. Number three, create a timed pop-up survey. Most people don't visit a new website and think, huh, so where's the email sign-up form? Oftentimes, you need your viewers to feel invested in your content before you present them with a request for, other, for their emails. So to build your email list, you might want to reach out to your visitors on specific pages with surveys related to that content. So, get them to engage. Number four, use humor or sarcasm in your call to actions. No thanks copy. We're still infiltrated with yes or no web offers on a daily basis. We barely see them anymore. So increase your email lists. You might want to try injecting some personality into your CTA copy. So, some personality. Describe value in your call to action. That's number five. Um, you need to have some value to your blog or your or your website, or you need, or you need to have some value in your own product, or you need to have a helpful you know little offer for your get them to join your email list. That's again, that's called the lead magnet. So um, it could be like a your lead magnet could be like a digital PDF. They could be an ebook. They could be a discount on your products. Um, and if you uh, go to my if you go to my website and go to the shop and buy my ebook, it'll give you a whole plan on how to um, use lead magnets and how to build a, a marketing strategy for your for your business. Central to that is your website. So it looks like having a website is a big part of this list here. Back to the article. Pitch your email newsletter on your social media accounts and email signature. So um, you might have, might have a long list of email subscribers. That doesn't mean you don't have a network. If you have a following on Twitter, a fan base on Facebook, or when it says you communicate with, with via email, why not use those firm and loyal connections to build an email list? You might try pitching an email newsletter on your social media account like Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. The people who follow you on those sites already know they like you, but they aren't necessarily the same people who receive your newsletter. Give them the option. If you're uncomfortable pitching your email newsletter on social media, or if you don't have a large following on any of your accounts, 
You can also include a link in your email signature. A link that could go directly to your email newsletter, or it could be a link to a blog post or landing page. Number seven, create more landing pages. A landing page is like basically a page on your website, or even a page off your website, that basically pitches a, a product or, a, or a service for your lead magnet. You, you, I'm sure you've seen them. They probably, if you, if you've ever seen an ad on Google or on Facebook and you click the uh, page that goes to is, is the landing page. It's, it tells you the offer. Strategy number eight, encourage everyone to sign up immediately. You want to strategically place personalized CTAs where it counts, on landing pages and blog posts. But what about the rare but real visitors who want to sign up immediately? If your newsletter primarily centers on around one or two topics, it's relatively easy to create a personalized CTA. Simply write a CTA that mirrors your newsletter's purpose, such as want free SEO hacks? Sign up for our newsletter. Include a CTA on your About Us page. That's number nine. Your About Us page is one of the most potent pages in terms of conversion potential. Think about it. How often do you visit About pages for businesses you don't care or know about? Ideally, your About Us page will prime visitors to want more from your business, but it might not be enough to convince them to purchase. A CTA that encourages them to sign up for a newsletter is easier to concede than a buy now please. So that's a great place to put your CTA. Number 10, try a scroll box. Timing is everything. Your call to action works best if you catch visitors when they are in fact ready to take action. Figuring out when your visitor is ready to convert depends on your website viewer's behavior. So you want, you'll want to conduct some A-B testing to determine where you need to place your call to action. Does it work best towards the bottom of a blog page when it slides out to the right, or does it get higher conversions at the beginning of a page, sliding out from the left? Ultimately, it will vary depending on your uh, page's content and your viewers, but the scroll box is a subtle and useful option to help you catch your viewers when they're most ready to convert. So um, a, lot of this is a, a lot of this depends on getting people on your website. So um, you want to get people to your website. I do think the best marketing and outreach to the public is best done on social media. But you want people to come to your website so you can either build your email list or do some other services for you. For you. So um, a website's a great tool for, for for business functions. Like you can use it as a booking platform. You can use it to sell products. You can use it to um, communicate directly to your customers or the public. Um, there's all sorts of things. So it does pay to have your own website. So click on the link to Fiverr or Vandasta and... Um, and click on the link to FundWise to get started. We're going to wrap up with some entertainment news. We're almost done. We're wrapping up here. From Screen Rant, The Suicide Squad is the most watched DC movie on HBO Max. James Gunn's Suicide Squad is currently the most watched DC film on HBO Max, surpassing both Wonder Woman 1984 and Zack Snyder's Justice League. Now, at theaters... Suicide Squad Part 2 was a flop. Now, they're saying that it's okay because more people are watching it at home. Do we believe that? Well, let's see. The Suicide Squad has become the highest viewed DC film on HBO Max. The soft reboot sequel was directed by James Gunn and saw the return of Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn, Joel Kinnaman's Rick Flagg, Viola Davis's Amanda Waller, and Jay Courtney's Captain Boomerang from 2016's Suicide Squad. The film follows both Wonder Woman 1984 and Zack Snyder's Justice League to be released directly out of the service. Suicide Squad has seen much praise in comparison to the original film, including a 91% rating in Certified Fresh from Critics on Rotten Tomatoes, in comparison to 2016's 
Titans Squad's 26%. The film was also warmly received by audiences, not only earning an 82% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but also broke pandemic-era box office opening records for R-rated films by grossing $4.1 billion on Thursday night's previous screenings. Ah, that's a, that's a big run on sentence. Now it has been revealed that the film has been further, seen further success through its same-day streaming release. According to recent reports by Saba TV via Deadline, a viewing analytics organization, the Suicide Squad registered a viewership of 4.7 million U.S. households during its first three weekends uh, of release on HBO Max. So Saba TV, you might think of Samba as the new Nielsen ratings. Um, Samba is like an app that is built into like a lot of smart TVs that allow streaming. It actually measures the time spent on different programs, whether it's on streaming or if it's on uh, broadcast television. It can actually measure you know screen time on 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 TVs. So I think a lot of them, um, and it's a third party. So I think a lot of news reports can use that as a measure of a film or a pro- streaming program success. You know, they, there's been talk about Disney, you know, getting away with fudging their numbers on Disney Plus, but with Samba, you can find out how successful a certain program really is. So. We also have to mention that John Cena is in this movie, is in Suicide Squad Part 2, and you gotta wonder how much that affected the box office, because we all know he made a fool of himself when it came to China and Taiwan, and um, I want to know how many people are still angry at him. That's just a little uh, peek at Streaming Wars. Finally, legendary puppeteer Frank Oz Explain to us, explains to us why you should never sell out to big corporations and sell out your vision. This is from BoundingIntheComics.com. Frank Oz blasts Disney's handling of the Muppets. The soul is not there. Legendary puppeteer Frank Oz, known for his work as Yoda, Fozzie Bear, Miss Piggy, Sam Eagle, Animal, and more, blasted Disney's handling of the Muppets. Oz spoke with The Guardian where he detailed that the selling of the Muppets was possibly what killed Jim Henson. Henson, the creator of the Muppets, died in 1990 of streptococcal toxic shock syndrome when he was 53. At the time of his death, he was in negotiations with Disney and its then-CEO Michael Eisner to sell the Muppets. Oz explained the Disney deal is probably what killed him. It made him sick. Eisner was trying to get Sesame Street too, which Jim wouldn't allow. But Jim was not a dealer. He was an artist, and it was destroying him. It really was, Oz elaborated. Not only did Oz claim that Disney, the Disney deal killed Jim Henson, but he also notes that there was a definite difference between the Jim Henson Muppets and the Disney Muppets. He said, There's an inability for corporate America to understand the value of something they bought. They never understood, with us, it's not just about the puppets, it's about the performers who love each other and work together for many years. Oz would then go on to reveal that Disney doesn't want him to do the Muppets. He stated, I love the Muppets again, but Disney doesn't want me. And Sesame Street hasn't asked me for 10 years. They don't want me because I won't follow orders, and I won't do the kind of Muppets they believe in. In fact, The Guardian's Hadley Freeman notes that Oz can't bear to watch the Muppets or Sesame Street today. Oz told her, the soul's not there. The soul's what makes things grow and be funny. But I miss them, and I love them. So... The article goes on to some tweets 
that were made on a couple uh, couple years ago. But I think we'll, we'll end it there because there's more to, you know, a business. There's more to a franchise than just the assets. It's the people. And some people aren't geared to be deal makers or business people. They're, they're artists like Jim Henson. And we, we need to protect people like that. Businesses need to um, understand that art makes life worth living. It is great for selling things, even if the even if the artists themselves don't know it, don't know how. It's um without entertainment, we would um we'd all go stir crazy. I think Stan Lee had a great you know, great quote about that. Like he like Stan Lee, he was he was kind of um upset with himself for many years because he wasn't an engineer or he wasn't a doctor. He he wrote comic books, but he came you know he came to understand that he was doing a great thing by writing comic books because he was. Helping people cope with life. Um, and Hollywood is just... Well, Hollywood is an institution. Just like everything else. Like the government. Like sports. Like corporations. It's been infiltrated by the far left. By the communists. By the uh, authoritarians. So, the good news is... Thanks to the internet, a lot of, people, a lot of creative individuals are striking on doing their own thing. They're going on to like... Substack, they're going on, they're building their own websites, they're on YouTube. One of the reasons why entertainment sucks so badly, from why Hollywood entertainment sucks so badly, is because all the um, truly talented people are leaving the Hollywood system. That leaves only the hacks and the uh, bootlickers to work for Hollywood. So, I know things look bad, but once again, I'm going to say things look bad because the powers of be are getting desperate. And they're getting desperate, and that just means. And we need to keep the pressure up. So with that, I'm going to let you go. Once again, check out my links, my resources. Hopefully they'll help you out and they'll support the channel. Also, go to my website, neathousand.net, and you'll see a lot more content. I'm getting more involved with um, sharing articles and providing you some helpful content as soon as that page will load. Maybe that's one drawback of DreamHost. It's a little slow, but... I just shared some articles about Masters of the Universe, about Hollywood losing ground in China, about the Open Table fiasco, about Bitcoin, about TV, about Vice Media. So take advantage of that and uh, tell your friends and family. With that, I'll let you go. This is Nate Houseman signing off and reminding you it's okay to stand up for yourself. Have a good one.